Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. So this morning we are looking here in Acts chapter 18, and uh, we are looking at what Ted read just a minute ago, verses 1 through 17. And I'd like to pray here this morning before we jump into this. And uh, in, our, in my prayer this morning, I want to pray for uh, uh, the, the team. If you, a couple weeks ago, if you remember, the team that was here from Tevri Tribe that was going up to Canada. And they are up in their Weagamaw, way up north, uh, northwest Ontario right now. And uh, Todd has the privilege, if you remember Todd who was here, he's uh, preaching this morning. And so he'll be preaching with a translator there, and he'll be translating what he's preaching into OG Cree, and then this evening he'll be doing a, an evangelistic outreach. And so we just want to uh, keep them in our prayers here. So I'd like to just pray for our time in the Word, for their time in the Word up there. They're probably uh, right now, well, wandering in probably at this point, so probably overlapping here a little bit. But let's, let's pray together. Father, now uh, I think of the words of that song we just sung, and... Lord, may your, you speak to us through your word. May it renew our minds. May it transform our lives. May it cause us to live for Christ until the earth is filled with your glory. What a great, great prayer. Father, I think of Todd this morning who will be opening your word and, and doing it with a translator, Lord. That's hard to do. It's hard when somebody is... is uh, is interrupting, so to speak, and you're speaking in short phrases, I pray that you would give him uh, clarity of thought, that his mind would stay focused in, in that kind of awkward teaching situation. But Lord, most of all, that your word would go forth, that the believers would be encouraged, and that those who are lost would hear words of life. And uh, help him tonight too, God, that he might speak your truth, and, uh, and that the gospel may go forth, and that a harvest would be would be reaped in that area. God, thank you now that we get to be together. May our study in this time in our community uh, bring forth Christ-likeness in all our ways. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have a question for you. I want you to think about this. I'm sure that something along this line has happened to you. Um, ever been in a situation where maybe you were in a pretty difficult time, a difficult trial, and in the midst of that difficult trial, somebody came up to you trying to encourage you, and in the course of their encouragement, they said something along the lines of, well, I know God's in control, or God's going to work all this out for good. And when they offered those words of encouragement, you were not blessed, but instead, you got upset. You ever have that? Somebody like tries to offer a word of encouragement to you, tries to encourage you to, to think about God and his sovereignty. And when that happened, you actually didn't receive it as a blessing, but you actually got a little annoyed. Sometimes it comes because you feel maybe the person's dismissing your situation, or maybe you, you don't feel like they're taking it seriously, or they're, they're, they're pacifying it, but whatever. But, but probably a lot of us have had a situation similar to that, where somebody's come up, tried to say, in the midst of our trial, try to offer some kind of encouragement in the Lord, and we didn't receive it as an encouragement, but we received it in a way that it actually bothered us. Now, if that's happened to you, ever wonder why? Now, one particular reason why that that could be the case is that sometimes when you're in the midst of a trial, you're fixated on the moment, 
and all of a sudden kind of going global and thinking about the sovereignty of God can be a little bit, bit of a transition for you. Right? Sometimes that, that idea of like, hey man, I'm just trying to survive the moment. And I don't know if I'm ready to take a step back and look at from creation to new creation. I don't know if I'm ready to go there in my brain. That could be a reason why. It could be that we're fixated so much that we can't pull out. But the, the reality, though, is that if somebody comes up to, to you, comes up to me in the midst of a trial, and says, hey, God's in control, the reality is they're right. <laughs> they are right. They're 100% correct. And so the, pro, the, the reality for us is that we have to, sometimes, especially if that's a struggle for us, we have to learn to understand what that means. Because that reality of God being in control sometimes is hard for us to grasp. It's something that is, is really hard for us to grasp because our emotions could be thinking, well, if God's in control, then why am I facing this problem? Right? If God's in control and all things work out for good, I don't see a lot of good going on right now. It doesn't seem like God's in control. You see, if I were God, this is what control would look like. I mean, when I control things, I always work it out for my benefit, right? I mean, that's what my control yields, and I would think that God would, would do the same if I were God, right? That's, I mean, that's really the reality of the thought. So, so the issue, I think, for us in this world is to understand the sovereignty of God in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of, of, of the reality that we live in a sinful world in a decaying body around sinners. I mean, that, that's really where we live and we exist. And, and the sovereignty of God doesn't pull us out of that moment. The sovereignty of God is actually what allows us to endure through it. There's no air lifting over the Red Sea, man. You pass through it. And you have to learn what does that mean. And this is, the reason why I'm saying all this is because we get to Paul here in Corinth and this particular ministry is a tough one. It's tough for Paul. So much so that God shows up and speaks to Paul. And tells him, don't be afraid. Because there's trials going on here. But yet in the midst of the trials, there's the sovereignty of God. And, and I want us to see this today. Now I have an outline, right? The trials of Paul, the sovereignty of God. And in one hand, you'll see that kind of general outline in the text. But yet, actually, those two realities, there are trials and complexities that weave through this narrative, and there's also God's hand, God's sovereign hand. And both those things are weaving together. And I think if we see the story, we see what Luke recorded for us, we see the words of Luke here, it will show us how God is sovereign. That's why I entitled this Experiencing the Sovereignty of God. And I think for us as believers, it's important to understand how God is sovereign, how you see him, how you see what he's done, how you see how he's working, how you can experience this, so that if somebody comes to us in the midst of a problem and says, hey, you know, God is sovereign, he's in control, that we could go, thank you, I needed to hear that, rather than get away from me. I don't want to hear that. Okay, and I want us to see this today. So, so let's look at it here. We kind of walk ourselves through it just to give us a little backdrop 
of where we're at. Paul is entering Corinth. He's just left Athens. He was in Athens. He's actually been on the run, okay, really on his second missionary journey. He's been running away from these, 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 these Jewish religious leaders who are trying to kill him. And uh, he's been separated from his team. And as he's been kind of moving, he was just, the previous spot was in Athens. He had a chance to, to speak at the Areopagus and share about the resurrection of Jesus and the, and, the, and the reality of God as creator and sustainer of the universe. Only a couple of believers came out of this move, this, this mission in Athens, and most of Athens considered him a theological lightweight, and, and he left. And then he arrives in Corinth. And he's got two problems as he arrives in Corinth, two big problems that show up. The first problem we see in the first three verses, he's out of money. He's broke. Notice here in verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Okay, so he's now left Athens. He goes to Corinth. He founds, finds this Jew by the name of Aquila. His wife's name is Priscilla. And, uh, and there, Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla are both tent makers. And Paul is a tent maker. Leather worker. Makes tents. It appears as if Paul is out of money. If you read through 1 Corinthians, you discover that he was out of money and that he could have preached the gospel, seen people get saved, collected an offering, and lived off those offerings, but he said he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to do that because there were lots of uh, teachers that came in and out of Corinth that collected money from the people, and he didn't want to be seen as those kind of people. He didn't want to be seen as that kind of person. It'd almost be like if you decided to start a television ministry, it might be good not to ask for money every week because there's all those charlatans out there ripping people off asking for their money. And he doesn't want to have that kind of guilt by association. So instead, he gets a job. Now, Corinth is a very uh, a cosmopolitan city. It was a trade city. There were lots of in, uh, ships that went in and out of there. It was just its location made it perfect to be a shipping center. It had a giant temple in the middle of it uh, to, to the goddess Aphrodite. If you know that name, you can understand what happened in that temple. There were 10,000 temple prostitutes. There were sailors going in and out of there from every country of the world. When, when ships would come in with trade goods, the prostitutes would make their way from the temple down to the streets, and all kinds of debauchery would happen. You know, every day was kind of like, uh, you know, Mardi Gras kind of stuff going on. Just pagan place. They had lots of false teachers that would come through there, lots of philosophers that would come up. They loved listening to philosophers speak. They had a, a town square with a stage, and philosophers would just stand up and just start talking and speaking eloquently, and people would throw money at them, and it was just, just a, a wild, wild place. And um, to me, it's kind of like, like uh, New York City meets uh, Las Vegas meets... Uh, uh, New Orleans during Mardi Gras, all mixed together into this place. Paul is there. He has no money. He doesn't want to be seen as one of those kinds of teachers. And so he comes across this couple who are uh, tent makers, and Paul is a tent maker. 
Now, we noticed something about this couple. They were, they were living in Rome. I want you to think about this. They're living in Rome, and they got thrown out of Rome. The emperor Claudius, he had, there were two times that Claudius had thrown Jews out of Rome. One, he had thrown all just the Jewish population out. There was a second situation where he threw all the Jewish Christians out. The Jewish Christians, because they were spreading, and people were placing their faith in Jesus, and so he didn't like that, and so he threw the Jewish Christians out. Most theologians believe that this is, that, that Aquila and, and Priscilla were thrown out at the Christian dispersion of the Jews, but I want you for a moment to think about this. If you are Aquila and Priscilla, and you have a job, and you're living in, in Rome, and all of a sudden, the emperor thinks you're a threat, and he forces you to leave, that would be quite a crisis, wouldn't it? If you suddenly had to leave your home today and go live in North Dakota, I'm not picking on North Dakota, it's just the first state that came to my brain, okay? If you had to just suddenly leave here and go live in North Dakota and start over, be an entrepreneur, start your job, right? Because you can't transfer companies or anything like that. Completely starting over, you could imagine what that must have been like. I think about this because I think at this moment, here's this couple They've been driven out of Rome, and they go and they start a business in Corinth, a tent-making business. Paul has been separated from his team. He's run out of money. He's, he's basically been on the run uh, from Jews who are trying to kill him. He shows up in Corinth, and he needs a job. Now, if you are uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and this situation's happening... We don't have any record that God had said, hey, you're, I'm going to send you out of here and go to Corinth, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to meet this guy, Paul, who's going to be like this amazing missionary guy, and you're going to team up with this guy, and it's going to be incredible. All they experienced was we're thrown out. This is kind of a crisis that's showing up. And all of a sudden, you've got this displacement, but yet in this displacement, what's happening? God is making an alignment I like to call these moments in Acts mission alignment. Even though from their perspective they've lost everything, they got to go start over somewhere else, God is getting them to establish something there because God is going to connect them with Paul. And when they do, Romans 16 tells us that this becomes a missionary team that is incredible. Paul is alone and he's no longer alone now. Two more team members have been added They've been added under political unrest. They've been added under an emperor who doesn't like them. It's been added because there's been threats. I mean, Aquila and Priscilla's uh, um, displacement and dispersion out of Rome into Corinth was not pleasant. Yet God was aligning the perfect pieces to come together. And in Romans 16, verses 3 and 4, Paul sends a greeting to uh, Priscilla and Aquila, eventually later became known as, her name got first. This is the only time his name is first. Priscilla and Aquila, and he says, greet them because they risked their lives for me and for the gospel, Paul says. God is putting together a team. But yet trials are what is driving this team. The trials of Paul being out of money, the trials of this family being dislocated, but what's amazing is that this is about a divine appointment. This is about a divine appointment. Every time I read passages like this, it always it gets me thinking about you know, moments that of, of displacement in my own life. Sometimes I think when I drop my car keys, and I'm frustrated because I dropped my car keys, and you know, like you're walking along and I'm trying to, you know, 
I always feel like when I'm leaving my house, I, I'm camping. Like I got a hundred things that I got to carry with me everywhere I go. And, and, and I, it's always like little things too. And you think with all the bags I have that, you know, I just strap them all on and I'd be hands-free, but it's not the case. And then I drop my keys and then I kind of go, ugh, right? I, I make this noise. It's probably louder, but I'm trying to make it more sanctified <laughs> up here right now. But then what will go through my brain is, Lord, maybe there's a divine appointment in this. Now that comes a little later. That's the lagging thought. Maybe there's a divine appointment. Maybe there's somebody I'm supposed to meet, and I needed to be held up the extra 22 seconds it took to pick up those keys. And maybe there's a divine appointment in there somewhere. Because I see that all over Acts. It's kind of movements and problems and crises, but yet all along there's this mission alignment. Okay, so here's the first crisis. Paul's out of money, but of course God has already resolved that by using a wicked emperor to cast some Jews out of Rome. That's how God chose to solve that problem. But there's a second problem he has. He faces rejection of the Jews. Notice verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Okay, so we know what his mission is. He would always go to the synagogue first. He would try to find people who had some foundation in the word, whether they were Jews or Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. And notice in this, it says he reasoned every synagogue. I'm sorry, every synagogue. Why, that didn't make sense. He reasoned every Sabbath in the synagogue. Because he's working six days a week. Got a job, so now he's just there on Saturdays. And he's trying to explain to them who Jesus is. But then notice what happens in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, hey, the team's here. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, the Christ, that Christ was Jesus. Now, the way the ESV has that recorded, that Paul was occupied with the word, is about as awkward of a translation as you could get. Basically, what it's saying is, the way you translate it is, Silas and Timothy arrived, and now he was able to go full-time back into ministry. That's what it's saying. Why? Because they brought a gift from Philippi. The church in Philippi sent Paul money. And it's here that Paul writes a letter back to the Philippians saying, thank you for the gift. They bring money with them. So he doesn't have to work anymore. And now he can be occupied. He's focusing with the word, testifying, telling these Jews, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the promised one. So that's what's going on here. Now notice what happens in verse 6. Again, this is kind of a, a lame translation. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It says when they opposed and reviled him, they actually... The idea behind this opposed and reviled, which is kind of a weak translation, it basically means this. They stood in one accord to go against him. So he's in the synagogue, and the idea is that the leadership, the Jewish leaders and the Jews that were there in the synagogue, actually so disagreed with him, so disagreed with him, that they actually were attacking it. They were actually attacking. They were actually going after it. They were actually saying, this is from hell. The way we know they're saying this is Paul's response. Your blood be on your own heads. What they were doing is they were blaspheming Jesus. That's what it means. He's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. They reviled it. They were basically saying Jesus was from hell. 
He's demonic. He's not right. This is how opposed they were. It was so bad that Paul literally takes his jacket and he starts doing this with it. He doesn't want to rip it, probably because it's only one. But if he had another one, he would have probably ripped it. Because in that day, you ripped your clothes to say, this is wretched what's happening here. But in this case, he's just shaking it, it says. And he's, I think he's being intense. There's an exclamation point there in the text because I think it's written in a way where he is saying, your blood is on your own heads. I can't even be in this room with you. You have just blasphemed God. And now you will suffer for it. And he rejects them. Notice this. From now on, I will only speak to Gentiles. That's it. You guys have rejected the Messiah. This is really intense. He is just fired up. He says he's innocent. What he's saying is, I've clearly presented the truth to you. And by you opposing it in the way that you did, you will face the fires of hell. I mean, this is intense. Right? You, you know, it's amazing. They had the truth presented, and rather than embracing it as words of life, they called it evil and wicked. And so they reject it. And so he rejects them. It's interesting. There's just a couple of times in the Bible where you see this idea of like literally walking away from somebody. Seems as if there's just two times Two situations where you're, you're told to walk away. In this situation, when someone blasphemes and ascribes evil, God as being evil, you see people backing away. The second one is when people pretend like, Paul told Timothy, you know, they put on a form of godliness, but they're really denying the very power. They're denying Jesus themselves. They're not living for Jesus, but they're just pretending like they are. Paul says, avoid those kinds of people as well. So you see, there are moments when this pull away happens. This is one of them. He takes a step back. And now he goes to work with the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews. He's, he's done. He will not present to them anymore. That's quite a trial when you think about it. We read that and we kind of think, wow, look at Paul, he's all bold. But that's a pretty intense moment. You know, to be at that level of hostility, to know that they all banded together and if you're Paul, what are you thinking at this moment? You're thinking, oh boy, you know, usually when they get this mad at me, they try to kill me, right? That's kind of my pattern. I preach Christ, they get mad, then they try to kill me. That's usually what happens. This is a trial. First trial, he didn't have money. God provided a job, and then God provided his team to come with an offering. But then the second trial, this rejection shows up. And this is the, a huge trial. A huge trial. But let's look now at the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God shows up in a couple of ways. First, it shows up in the gospel. There, there's a response of the Gentiles. A revival does happen because at this point, Athens, not much happened in Athens. He comes to Corinth. It gets worse in Corinth. Not much is happening there. But then notice the response of the Gentiles. Look at verse 7. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Okay, now, notice, he says, I'm only going to work with the Gentiles. So then he left there, and he went to this, this house of Titius Justus. 
a worshiper of God, which means that he was a Gentile who probably believed. So he was a Gentile in the synagogue. Paul going to his house would, would kind of signify that he had trusted the message of the gospel. But notice where his house is. It's next door to the synagogue. Now, when you read that, you think to yourself, next door like in suburbs, right? That's probably what your mind thought. You thought, here's Tish's house, and then there's a nice yard, the kid out there mowing it, and then the synagogue. It's probably what you thought. But they didn't build houses like that. They shared a wall. That's the picture. Remember, they built all their houses, all strung together. Just think of all the old-time pictures you see of the houses, right? All strung together. When it's next door, it means this. <laughs> that the guy who believes out of this mess, the Gentile who believes, shares a wall with the synagogue. Right? He's like right next door, and this is where the church is going to start. Sharing the wall with the synagogue. Pretty amazing. But notice else who repents. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. What does that mean? You know, synagogues, I've said this before, but just to kind of repeat it again, just to get it in your brain again. Synagogues were these worship centers that were established when the, when the Jews were kicked out of Israel back during the time of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylonian captivity. And since they couldn't worship in the temple, they set up these little worship centers. And they were places for people to sing, places for the word to be taught, and, uh, and our modern church setup is actually modeled off the synagogue. People come, they sing, and uh, the teacher teaches. And in the, the synagogue, there was somebody who ran it. They would call him the ruler. That was the equivalent of a pastor. The person whose job it was to manage the schedule, to oversee the teaching, to basically manage the events that go on around the synagogue. Okay, so, so Crispus is that guy. If you want to put it in contemporary vernacular, he's the pastor of the synagogue. And so he winds up repenting, and his whole household did. His whole family did. And so you've got Titius, who repents, and his house is sharing a wall with the synagogue. The pastor of the synagogue repents, and his whole household does. And then suddenly, boom, this revival happens. Now, we, I'm going to speculate something here. When Paul runs out of money and he goes and he gets a job, he goes out and what is he doing? He's making tents. And that's putting him in contact with the community, isn't it? It's putting him in contact with people. And I think this is where the tent-making ministry suddenly begins to start flourishing because Paul is living for Christ, right? I can't imagine that he wasn't sharing the gospel when he was making tents. And suddenly, fruit is beginning to, to, to come out of these crises. The fruit of not having a job, or not having money, causes him to get a job. I think it gets him in the community, and now the community's repenting, and, and even the trial in the synagogue that is throwing him out. The pastor, the head of the synagogue, repents. And his whole family does, and they join this church, and now this church is sitting right next door to the synagogue. That's the image that Luke is painting for us. It's an incredible picture. And you can begin to see God at work through all these different trials and problems using them. 
And suddenly it isn't just that Paul's out of money. Oh no, what's he going to do? God, Paul is getting him in, or God's getting him into the community. And, and it isn't just that he was rejected. He made such a public statement about his rejection and it gets people's attention. And now a whole new move's going on right next door. This is the sovereignty of God. And now you've got these believers that are coming. And now there's a revival happening in Corinth. Now Paul, I believe at this point, knows I've got Jewish leadership who hate me. And now I've got a revival going on. I know exactly what's happening next. They're going to arrest me, beat me, stone me, try to kill me, try to you know, throw me in prison, try to crucify me, something. I know that's what's coming next. And so now we're going to see the sovereignty of God show up in the promise of God. Okay, notice what happens. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's how long as he stayed anywhere. A little over a year and a half. But notice, there are four things that God said to him. God shows up at this moment. Because all Paul knows at this point is that this is when things get bad. This is when things get rough. This is when they start sneaking me out in the middle of the night. This is when I start getting on boats and hiding out in places and, and doing all this kind of stuff, traveling in the bad time. This is when me and the team get separated. This is it. It's all going downhill, right? If you were Eeyore, this is like your glorious moment when everything could go wrong, right? So it's not going to work, God. Why a revival? Why are these guys always mad at me? Now, Paul's not doing this. I'm just saying that if I were there, that might be what could be said. And so, at least I would be thinking that, right? But we know one thing. God steps in at this moment. Notice the four things he says to him. The first he says is, do not be afraid. Why would he say this? I'm guessing Paul was afraid, right? And you know, I suppose all it takes is one time somebody throwing big boulders at your head to make you a big skittish, right? <laughs> that might be the thing that could get you, right? I mean, a lot less has taken me out than big rocks, right? So he's got these, you know, he knows what's coming, but he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know that, that, that you have every reason to be, but don't. Then the second thing he tells them, I want you to keep speaking boldly. I want you to keep talking. Don't stop. I know this is usually where you're taking off and running. This time, stay. I want you to keep talking. Don't hold back. Now, again, I could see this because, because if we have felt a way lesser pressure than this, right? Have you ever like been at a situation and, and you're sitting at a table and somebody starts talking about God loudly and your flesh says, ooh, shh. You know, that's too loud. We're going to talk about Jesus at this table. Because, you know, Jesus, he's really cool. And I, I had a great time in church the other day. Right? We, we drop it a little bit. We're afraid. That's without anybody throwing boulders at us. So picture being arrested, being brought, not knowing if you're going to go to jail, not know if they're going to crucify you. But he says, no, keep speaking boldly. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Okay? Don't hold back. Why? The third thing he says. He says, you can do this 
Because no one's going to attack you. I'm with you. Okay? I'm with you. What I love about that third thing that God says to him is he shows something, that God is actually in time and space. Sometimes it's easy to think that God is kind of just standing back and lightly controlling things. We can think of God a little bit like an air traffic controller, kind of sitting there, telling the planes where to go, but the planes actually have the control, and the controller's just offering suggestions, hold and maintain your altitude at 35,000 feet, and uh, stay on course, and, and the pilot's going, okay, I'll choose to believe that or not. But the reality is that Acts is saying, no, nah, God's still flying the plane. He's in control. He says, listen, I am not going to let anything touch you. Which is the fourth, and it leads to the fourth thing. Because there's a lot, there's a huge harvest in this place. And I'm going to keep you there until the harvest is reaped. Until the harvest is reaped. I've got a lot of people. You see, before the foundations of the world, there were just thousands of people in this region that, that, that I have my eye on. And so I'm going to protect you so that you can be part of that. You're the guy that I have called to be there to reap that harvest. So don't worry. I'm not going to let these people touch you. Okay, there is the sovereignty of God. It's pretty incredible. What an incredible point. But this leads to a really unique moment because you would think then that everything would go great, right? If God shows up to you tonight and says, don't worry about tomorrow, you're, this is what's going to happen, and he, and he starts laying out everything for tomorrow, you might think that you're going to get up and you'll have no problems. You've got to remember, the promises of God are never, ever connected to the absence of problems, Right? That's the one American thing we got to dump from our, uh, our mindset. We think if God's going to make a promise like that, man, we're just going to, it's going to go great. We're going to wake up tomorrow. Our garden will grow without weeds. Our grass will maintain a perfect level. Only if you want to mow it, you'll mow it. It'll be awesome. That'll be your world tomorrow. That's what we think. But the reality is the promises of God are protection in the midst of your problems. Problems won't go away. God is just protecting. So what happens? Here are the promises of God tested. Notice this. But when Gallio, verse 12, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So now, Gallio's kind of a nice guy, actually. Actually, it was a, a fairly decent leader, historians say. Um, but notice it says the Jews made a united attack. They actually sat down and strategized together. They were unified in their hatred of Paul. And they came up with this plan. The plan was actually pretty wise. Because notice, this is different. All the other time that Paul was attacked, the Jews would say to him, this man is causing unrest in the community you better arrest him. Now, though, they're going after his teaching. What they're trying to do, what 13, verse 13 is telling you, is what they're trying to do is they're trying to make his doctrine illegal. And if they can make his doctrine illegal, then any time he or anyone else says anything about Jesus, they will be arrested. So now they're playing a legal game. They're trying to shift the legality and saying, okay, if uh, this man is persuading people, not just Jews, 
persuading the nations, the people, everybody in the community, to worship God in a manner that is not lawful. When they, I don't think he's just, they're just referring to Jewish law there because he's referring to the, not just Jews. He's saying to everybody in Corinth. The Jews were given legal permission to proclaim their teaching. Every religious group had to submit their teaching basically to the Roman government. The government had to approve it. The Jewish teaching was approved. They're saying this teaching isn't. This teaching is not approved. And therefore, it's an unauthorized message. And he's persuading people to do this in a way that hasn't been legally approved. So now, if you're Paul, and you think about this moment, put yourself at this exact moment in time. God has said, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I'm going to protect you. No one will hurt you. And then all these Jews show up. And they drag you before the council, and they begin to say what you're saying is illegal. You could in your flesh maybe think, oh, this again? I thought God said. Now, Paul doesn't do that here. I'm just saying that I'm not Paul, right? But you see, the promise is tested. The question is, will you allow your experience to define the promises of God, or will you allow the promises of God to define your experience? There's the question for you. Are you going to sit there and say, okay, I'm back in jail again. Here we go. God says this, but it doesn't work. I tried Jesus. It didn't work. Could you do that? Right? So therefore, my experience is to find God. Or will I stand on the promises and say, okay, God, you're going to protect me. I'm going to let the promise of God define my experience, not my experience define the promises of God. That's a lesson. Paul was doing this, I believe. Because notice what happens. Verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, right, he's about ready to say, no, right, he's going to defend himself. God made good on his promise. Gallo said to the Jews, if for a matter of wrongdoings or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of a question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. They're trying to say, this is breaking and violating the law. He's saying, guys, this is really your law. You're trying, to, you're trying to bring it up to me? But it's not, doesn't even stand the test of being a crime. We would use this term, inside baseball. Do you know what that means? You ever listen to like a talk radio show on baseball? If you know nothing about baseball, that is boring. Well, I think on that second pitch, if he would have thrown a knuckleball, and if he would have dropped it down lower in the plate, because that guy always on his third pitch can never hit a knuckleball after. You're like, what are you talking about? I'm just watching him throw a ball back and forth. I, I have no idea about all those pitch counts and where his arm is. and blah, 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 right? it's, They call that inside baseball conversation. This is what he's saying. This is just an inside religious squabble. Get out of here. And he drives him out. Now, he drives him out like he drove him out. Literally, he got mad at them and pushed them out. That's like the image that's here. Now, notice what happens in the story. Verse 17. And they all seized Sosthenes. You're saying, who is this guy? Right? That's a good name, by the way, if you're pregnant. Sosthenes. It is. Sosthenes. That took me a while to figure out how to say that. But now that I know, (laughs) Sosthenes. Uh, they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, who's, Sosthenes is, the, is the, the guy who replaced Crispus, who had repented. So now this is the new pastor. 
who's there probably leading the charge because he's the guy in charge. So they make the case against Paul. Galileo drives him out. And so what do they do? They turn on him. And they begin to beat him in front of Galileo. Galileo just says, I don't care. And walks away. And this poor guy gets beaten. And I always look at this story and I think, that is so random. <laughs> I wish I had like this profound point. But there's only one point I can make from this. One point. Can you know what it is? Can anyone figure out what the point is of the beating of Sosthenes? It has nothing to do with some kind of drama of pastors always getting persecuted. That's not the point. The point is this. This will not be on the screen. I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, now this is Corinth, right? Years later, Paul writes a letter back to the church. This is one of the letters he writes. And he says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. He gets saved. And he joins Paul's team. I don't know where that happened other than what a conversion, right? Somebody's just beating you up, trying, your whole posse's trying to kill you. It would be easy to walk away from that, wouldn't it? Right? Okay, I don't think they got the truth over here, right? I don't see Paul doing that with Silas and Timothy over here. <laughs> Let's go, hey, Paul, can we talk? How do you run your organization, okay? You know, these people over here, they're, they're a bit rough. He repents. It's pretty amazing. What do we draw from this account? I'm way over here. I got a little lost in a sauce in a story. What do we draw from this? There's lots of things we can learn, you know, that the protection of God and the plan of God, they don't stop difficulties. But they are promises in the midst of them. And Paul had to deal with being out of money, he had to deal with rejection. Sosthenes had to deal with getting beaten up. Aquila and Priscilla, they had to actually be relocated and start a whole new business in a new place. There's all kinds of movement going on. There's all kinds of stuff happening. Trials happening, movement happening, you know, financial issues. All this stuff's just moving. And yet God is at work. In the midst of all of the movement, if you just look at the movement alone, it's hard to see God. But you take a step back, and he is at work. So there's three, three things I want to pull out of this as we close up here. Three things we want to pull out of this. The first that I have pulled out of this, first application point, is that God will provide protection for his children. He does protect us. But you just have to realize something. Protection doesn't mean the absence of problems. Protection means the promise of the presence of God in the midst of your problems. He's there. He has not left you. Right? There's protection, but it doesn't mean the absence of problems. It's the promise of the presence of God in the midst of them. Second application point. God will supply our needs in his time. God will supply. He did. He supplied. And, and the problems that Paul had to face, I think, were part of God setting Paul up for future work. 
connecting him with future team members, all kinds of stuff. This does not mean, though, with God supplying our needs, that there won't be moments where we'll have to work. There won't be moments of struggle. There won't be moments of of praying and asking for your daily bread. But God provides. The sovereignty of God is not an absence of struggle. And the provision of God is not an absence of struggle, but he does provide. Third thing, third one, this is the key one. God is always extending his kingdom. Now the reason why I say this is is I just want to simply illustrate it and then I'll make the point. The illustration is this. I can remember being about 20 years old, kind of just living for myself. And when, my pro- when problems would come my way, all the problems did was derail me because all I was doing was living for myself. Just living for what made me happy. Therefore, problems were, were things that could totally undo me because if all I'm doing is living for what makes me happy, problems don't make me happy. Therefore, I'm unsettled. When God got a hold of my mind and put this desire in me to, to want to say, God, I just want to live for your kingdom. I, I, I want to live for that. Suddenly, I began to see problems as mission alignment. Suddenly, when a problem would occur, I would see that problem, but I could see how that problem could be leveraged for the extension of the kingdom. I could see how that moment It could be a moment of faith. It could be a moment of of trust. It could be a moment of of being able to stand firm and say, you know what, maybe this thing's coming upon me, but I got all these people around me who don't know Jesus, and so if if I trust Christ right now and I anchor myself in him, I'll be able to share that with these people, so thank you for this problem. When I'm facing this issue in my family and I got this issue in my home, I can respond with the gospel take the junk that comes my way from responding with the gospel and hopefully let it be a light that shines. You see, suddenly I saw problems as God's mission alignment. God's always extending his kingdom. This is what he's about, till his glory fills the earth. We sung it this morning. And if he's always extending his kingdom and we're his children and we're part of him, then everything is about that. And if you can get your eyes from living for yourself and just getting up and being self-absorbed to saying, okay, God, today is a day where I get to make Christ known. Then maybe when the problem happens, you see it as a moment to make Christ known. And it's at that moment that the sovereignty of God becomes a blessing and not an annoyance. That's what happens. I think that's true of Paul. I think that's true in the book of Acts. And I know it's been true in my life. And so the prayer for us is to praise God for his protection, to praise God for his provision, and then to turn from the areas of our lives where we're self-absorbed and to become kingdom-absorbed in those areas. So let's pray for that right now. Let's pray together. God, I do thank you that you are with us that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we praise you for your presence and protection in our life. We praise you for your provision. We praise you that in the midst of trials and struggles, you are there, you are present with us. But Lord, I pray for all of us because we don't live kingdom-minded. The struggle 
that comes the moment we walk out this door is our own agenda. It's the emails that are constantly coming in. It's the calendar. It's the expectations of coworkers, of bosses, of family members, the expectations of our, that we place upon ourselves. It's the perfectionism that we want things to be a certain way. Or it's our inability to even be disciplined in the way we run our lives. All of these things, God, just fight to, to own our mind and derail us as we live in this world stained with sin. Jesus, you prayed not to take us out of this world, but to help us endure because there are many people in this community that I believe you have marked off. There are many people in the nations of the world that you have marked off. There are many people in India. There are many people in Canada. There are many people in the Czech Republic, places that our ministries touch. And so we endure these trials to extend your name. But Lord, make that true in our hearts. Shift our thinking, God, so that we'd be consumed with your kingdom and then see how you're aligning things in the adjustments of life. God, make that real in us. Thank you that your word can challenge us to think that way. And may it be true of us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.